Hello, listeners. Jordan here. I just want to let you know that you can listen to Nighttime early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Include it with Prime. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. You are tuned to the Nighttime Podcast, focused on the fringe of Canada. Welcome back to a planned two-part series covering the murder of Tess Ritchie. In the last episode, we were joined by Karen Lieberman, a Toronto-based journalist with Global News. During our time with Karen, she shared her experiences reporting on both Tess's senseless murder and the trial against her killer, Kaylin Schlater. But tonight, we're going to get even closer to this heartbreaking story. As we heard Karen describe, this story heavily features a band of Richie women who've been steadfast in their support of Tess throughout every tragic twist and turn. Tess, the youngest of five sisters, had each one of them rallying around her and her mother Christine as they were pulled through every family's worst nightmare. Starting with the search for Tess, into the search for her killer, and throughout the entire trial, the Ritchie women have stood shoulder to shoulder wearing Tess's beads and demanding justice. Tonight, in this episode of Nighttime, we're going to be given an inside look at this tragedy by someone who's living through it. Our guest is Tess's eldest sister, Verena Ritchie, and our topic, the murder of her sister, Tessie. Verena, I'll, I'll let you introduce yourself in a moment, but I want, mm-hmm. I want to set it up like this. is My Twitter account, I think I follow two or 300 people, and they're from they're from all walks of life. So I have you know journalists, TV personalities, UFO investigators, paranormal ghost hunters. But of the whole group, I, th- I think you're easily among the most entertaining on there. It's a, <laughs> your, your Twitter account. It's almost like its own genre. There's like a bit of fashion. There's some live PD, <laughs> and then there's just some like downright drama that I don't understand I it, but I find it fascinating to watch it no. play out. Uh, so why don't you just tell us a bit about who, who Verena Ritchie is. So introduce yourself. Uh, well, I'm certainly, I guess, not, I'm not very good at these kinds of things, but I'm not a shrinking violet, I suppose. <laughs> I've, you know, and I think that came out a lot with my sister at trial. You know, we, we, we are very, or my, even my mom, you know, we're very sort of family. We aren't afraid to say no. We're not really afraid if people don't like us. So, and I think that kind of, that same quality sort of is prevalent throughout my family, throughout all of my sisters and my mom. And um, so I might be the more vocal of it, but um, it's, it's, you know, it's, 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 it's definitely a characteristic we all share. Mm-hmm. So tell me a bit about you. What, like, what's, uh, tell me a bit about your life without getting too deep into it. Yeah. Um, I, I think I was, you know, as the oldest sister, Funny enough, I think I was much more like the youngest sister than anyone. I I have lived, I I don't have children. Um, I like a nightlife. I like city life. I wanted to travel. I wanted the freedoms to travel. And I I, I did enjoy that until this tragedy happened. Um, So, you know, I I based myself in London. You know, if I I had an idea, if I dream, I went for it. Whether it was visiting a country I never thought I'd be able to visit or, you know, taking on a a course that I never thought I'd complete or that I never thought I'd have the opportunity to take. So, um, yeah, I was somebody that sort of lived life a little bit differently than maybe the rest of society has chosen to live. Yeah. And now a lot of people listening are acquainted with you mainly due to your connection with, with this tragedy that right. uh, surrounding your sister, Tess. Mm-hmm. How does it feel to be known in that context? Like so many people would would meet you and know you through the context of this is Tess Ritchie's sister. Like, does that ever feel normal for you? Um, it makes me feel very proud, more proud than I ever thought. I mean, I was always proud of my sisters. I was always proud of being from a family of women. Um, but, 
you know, I'm devastated, obviously, that it's this way that, you know, she made her mark on the world, uh, that this has happened to any of my sisters, any of my family, and myself, you know, that this has happened to our family, but uh, um, to be associated with her in, in, in any way, I'm so proud. I mean, whether it's this in life and in death, I mean, I would never have obviously ever predicted this or chosen this, but, you know, I am, I'm, want to, I'm proud to be hopefully one of her voices. Now, you've already talked to, you've already mentioned your, your mom and, and Tessa's sisters. And mm-hmm. I think any, almost every article written about, about the trial or about Tessa's life will go on to explain how she has so many sisters and she's so close with her mom. Tell, tell me a mm-hmm. bit about your, about your family and, and kind of the environment Tess was, was brought up in. Okay. Yeah. Um, so in fairness, there, I should be, there's a 14 year age difference between Tess and I. So, you know, as, as I turned 18, 19, she was four or five. Um, so I wasn't always around, but, um, <laughs> and I don't, I'm not going to speak for my sisters. I certainly can describe our household or our, which was chaotic, mm-hmm. colorful. Five yeah. sisters is that's a lot of yeah. Richie in one house. I imagine it really is. Yeah. <laughs> it really is. And, and, and we were, Thankfully, we had a fairly free childhood. You know, we were allowed to wear makeup and dress up and dabble in things at very young ages. Um, you know, experiment with our hair. And, you know, Tess was a very fashion conscious girl. You know, she had style. She loved going to, you know, uh, use clothing stores. She loved pearls. That's We always wore her pearls, pearls for her in, at the trial. That was our way of symbolizing her. You know, she, she was very feminine and and we were allowed to you know explore our styles and and, and do that so it was it was a fairly free childhood and I'm really you know happy about that yeah and you mentioned the age difference between you and Tess Uh, like Mm -hmm. what kind of relation as you got as you both got older what kind of relationship did you have because I I know um, just seeing from your there's a video that I often see of I think it's like your profile on maybe on Facebook or something where you're both mm-hmm. doing shots together. I just found that a couple of weeks. I didn't even know I had it. That actually, I didn't even know I had that. I was sorting through some videos because lockdown and everything. There's not, I can't go visit my friends or do anything while I'm uh, already transplanted in Toronto for this trial because I'm kind of stuck here now. So uh, just, yeah, I was going through that. Um, I honestly, I could have done better. I didn't always stop to see my sisters you know kind of everywhere the Toronto and I would sometimes just go straight up to Cochrane or somewhere and I didn't always as they became adults I didn't always you know I thought I had more time she's 22 but they're like I was here I'll be honest I was here all summer before she passed away and I didn't see her that summer so I'll be you know I'm, I'm the first to admit that you know I guess I, I could have as a sister done much better in that department you know, not beating myself like it's it is one of those things I couldn't have ever predicted this, but definitely, definitely that was something I could have done better. Yeah, I can I, I can't even well I shouldn't say I can imagine, but I I can't imagine. Yeah, but you can put, I'm sure you can sort of put yourself in my shoes in that sense. You know, well, having somebody so tragically ripped away and knowing that um I didn't I, I was in the same country, same province, and I didn't see her that summer. So you know that it will always break my heart because I know that I could have been a better sister or made more of an effort or reached out a little bit more. I mean, we, we weren't on the outs or anything. We talked and we spoke and we were close, but we weren't super close. And I, I wished, I wish I would have seen her more. It's, you know, maybe, maybe it'll hope me. I hope it will encourage somebody else to maybe make the effort if they're on the outs with someone or, um, maybe not as in touch as they could to just pick up the phone and send a text, even. So maybe that can be something that comes from. You had mentioned that for you, home is was back in the UK, and that that's where you were living at at the time that that this occurred. Do you recall? how and when you first learned that Tess was yeah. missing. Can can you tell me about that? My sister Haley called me. I was just getting into bed. It was um, later in the day, obviously, in England. 
they noticed that she was missing Saturday. They had been in contact with the police and they was getting serious. So my family, my, my mom got my sister Haley to call me. And Haley called me and answered the phone and she's like, how are you? And I'm like, good, long time. You know, I, was, I had just graduated from university 10 days earlier. So I thought, you know, calling to wish me good luck on the job or because it was supposed to start the next day because it was Sunday. And uh, she just said, I we can't find Cassie. And I knew immediately that she wasn't joking because my sisters have never pulled any, you know, out of all my young, you know, I have younger, four younger sisters. Nobody's ever pulled a stunt where we couldn't find them even after a, a big night out. That's never happened. And I knew that it had to be pretty serious. And I hung up on her. I was really angry at her because I was like, well, this better be serious if you're calling to tell me this. You know, it was not like it was just, I don't know. It was just, I, I, I was, I was scared I guess because my sisters don't do that and I could tell in her voice that they were scared and um yeah I uh immediately started calling my cousins um I called them and I said this is going on what do you think and they said well you know my cousin's older than me and she said you know when we were younger we were 22 and it's her birthday weekend the the the, the you know just anything right could be anything but it was when I saw the um the official police release on twitter and i had to make a post on facebook asking my friends to help find my sister that i really really was frightened and it's like the, those initial kind of posts you mentioned the police making on twitter i think i found out about it right around that same time i remember in the news even here in nova scotia i remember seeing tessa's photo wow. with just like a brief oh, wow. summary and yeah it, i i don't know why i just clearly remember it and I don't know if it was because of her, her picture. Like the, there's the picture that was used that was taken earlier on that day of her right, kind of sitting right. in, the, in the leaves or something. Yeah, in the leaves. But yeah. it just, it what struck me about it was it just seemed like she had been missing for about a day, but it seemed very serious. And yeah, and I, I could tell yeah. that whatever was going on was way out of the ordinary. Like was that the mood within mm-hmm. within like amongst your family? Is that you know there was no way? That uh, this yeah, was... oh yeah, yeah. Like I'd never when my my mom knew me like we were facetiming and i my mom was like no like she was still in north bay at this point like i, I don't know if she knew this was gone but she knew it was bad like i could tell her she was like no Verena. i'm like mom just calm down i'm like she's probably had too much to drink doesn't have a charger you maybe met a guy staying over at his house like god knows you know she's 22 it just can't be that out you know but she was you know i i knew i i, I could tell by how she was reacting that it wasn't good at all and, and um, that was pretty universal amongst everybody involved. Like yeah, if- yeah, we panicked. We 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 didn't waste any time. We didn't sit around and wait for the authorities to tell us something. My sister Rachel was already going and knocking on the neighbor's door. Uh, the person Michelle, the witness, um, the person that my sister was chatting with outside her house, just around the corner from where she was found, um, who was very helpful, but you know didn't know what happened to her beyond when she had last seen her, um, I immediately went to Facebook. My friends started sharing the posts. I had friends that knew that I was in England and um, my friends were amazing printing posters. They were putting, you know, we just, we just didn't wait around. We just got jumped right into it. I remember like emailing the press, tweeting the press. Uh, my sisters, like they were out handing posters. They went to Toronto. They were looking in physically looking for her in the neighborhood with my mom. Um, we had friends that had border, like friends that worked at the border. We had them looking, we had friends that did, uh, documentaries and human trafficking. And we had them use some of their resources. Like we, we, we pulled out every connection we could find. We used every social media tool we could. Wow. Anything. Yeah. Anything we could think of. So. Yeah. And it seems like we don't need to get deep into this side of it, but Mm -hmm. a lot of criticism has been directed towards the local police Mm -hmm. mentioning and referring to the fact that, yeah. And referring to the fact that it was mainly Tessa's Mm -hmm. loved ones that were leading the search and ultimately were the ones successful in in finding her. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And that is, that's still playing out. Like police officers were actually charged for the handling of this. Yes, and they and I mean, I, I guess I should say the whole innocent until proven guilty and everything. But knowing what I know, I definitely believe like I, they should be. I think it's appropriate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As as an outsider, like the the position that 
your mom was put in. Like, I don't think mm-hmm. sh- there should never be a situation where, no. where that, that never. happens. I c- there should never, pardon me for interrupting, there should never be a city as large as Toronto where they had, I think they said something like four to 5,000 people reported missing a year. Most people are, it's resolved without it being a tragedy. But to most, I think all of us were shocked to find out the hard way that there was no missing persons bureau in Toronto, that there was no special training. There was no uh, system in place for this particular sort of event for adults. There's Amber alerts and things in place for children, but for adults, um, you know, they seem a little bit less. It seemed like at the time that they were taking it a far less seriously mm-hmm. well, than say children. As evidenced by the fact that it was, Tessa's loved ones that were the ones going knocking yeah. on doors and searching mm-hmm. in alleyways mm-hmm. and uh, no I I know it's I'm, I imagine it's really hard to talk about but mm-hmm. one of the many tragedies that are in the story is is mm-hmm. this the story of your of your mom finding Tess like mm-hmm. I can I know you can't talk for your mom but what's it like how did that play out <laughs> from your point of view like what do what do you know about that to be honest, I didn't know that that was the case until like a day, two days after I was back in the country. When my sister called me and said she's gone, it was panic. I started screaming, calling people, and they were booking me flights. They were getting me drivers to pick me up. I were starting, the news was breaking. My phone was starting to go off. Um, and um, so I didn't really find out. I kind of just jumped on a plane. I had no phone access then for eight hours until I got to Toronto. My sister picked me up at the airport. Um, we got back to my other sister, Rachel's house, and um, my mom had a, a bit of a medical episode, um, you know, from the trauma. So I ended up going, because my sisters had been, you know, with her for the last few days and whatnot, I was the one that went up to the hospital with my mom. And that's sort of how I found out, like, she was kind of, she was getting treated by doctors, and my sisters were texting me, and then I realized that mom found her. So um, I didn't I didn't even know the details of that until... There was just so much going on that 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 I didn't even I my you know I hadn't even really spoken to my mom. She was up in a bedroom, kind of medicated. She came out and kind of had a collapse, and we had to rush her up to the hospital. And so I didn't find out until, you know, a couple of days. Even even though I was with the family, it just kind of it was just chaos, I guess. Yeah, and, and just so I understand it right, like your mom doesn't live in Toronto. She came from North. She Bay came to, from North Bay to join the search. Yeah. What, yeah. With, where is North Bay in, in relation to, like, is that a smaller, like, suburb, or where yeah, is Yeah, it is. It's about, well, it's not a suburb, it's a small town, or a smaller city. It's about, I'd say roughly about four hours north of Toronto. Wow. So, so from, yeah. your, from your mom's point of view, it's like she mm-hmm. was going to the big city. Well, she spent a lot of, not, like, she spent a lot of time with Tess and Scarborough at her apartment, very close. Mm-hmm. I can, I can say this, because I, this is what she said to me, but she said when she went to the apartment in Scarborough, like we did a little trap at the door so that if she came home, we could tell that somebody had been in the apartment. And um, my mom said she didn't feel her there, but every time she went back to the neighborhood to look for her, she could feel something stronger. And that's how she eventually kind of found her. She feels like she just felt nothing over at the apartment in Scarborough, but when she was back downtown at the, uh, at the place where she was missing from, um, she said she felt like she could feel her. She felt like that's where she had to keep looking for her. Wow. Mm-hmm. Now, after after te- after your mom had found Tess, it was mm-hmm. very shortly after is when news came out that foul play was suspected, and they were you know sharing the photos of of her with the the unknown male she was last seen with at that time. Well, there was actually a ten day period between that. Actually, oh, we were told it was she died. She died of misadventure. We were told. The coroner, uh, we found out at trial, we thought that it came from the police, but actually it was the coroner who first ruled it was misadventure. Oh, so that wow. was, oh yeah, no. And then um, we didn't believe that for a second, to be honest. Like it, we did consider maybe, did she like go to the corner to try and pee and, you know, fall down a stairwell and hit her head? You know, we, we were trying to figure out, and I don't understand how a coroner can come to that conclusion based on her injuries. However, that is the case at first. Um, and then it came out as a homicide. Um, the news that the, what, the cause of death came out while I was in the hospital with my mom. So I had to wait till she got better before I broke the news to her that it was neck compression and that it was a homicide. 
Um, Because at that point, it was still, we were being told it was misadventure. Um, And misadventure would be, you know, I I fell uh, off a set of stairs. Yes, exactly. Like, basically an accidental death, like an unintentional, but, you know, something that led to your death, basically. Mm. And uh, so, you know, again, it was chaos. And then we didn't get, like, we were, nobody was designated a witness yet at this time. So we were kind of conducting our own investigation, in a sense. Like, we were trying to figure out who... Or what happened? And um, uh, so the we the 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 surveillance photo only came out actually on December tenth. So we had about ten days okay. before any kind of lead from the police, like any kind of information that that seems substantial. Yeah. And were you were or your family involved at all in the police investigation, or were you finding yes. out? Oh, you, so, so you... <laughs> not 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 directly with them, but because we were desperate, we were sharing the photos. We were taking tips were coming through our social media. Yeah. So we were having to direct and take those tips and then, and, and bring them to uh, detective Lumanis or, or detective Gibson. Um, so there was that, then we would be told, Oh, uh, there's a person that works in a particular shop near that area. Go. And so we'd go in and look and see wow. if it looked like the person from the surveillance photo. And, um, and you had like a, because again, I've watched it play out from the public point of view mm-hmm. where a period of time went where the photo of the then person of interest was circulating. Be- but right. Did during that time from the photo being released to them identifying him, was there activity where you were like working to try to f- like find him and f- following up leads or was it or were you? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. I, I kind of expected. Yeah, we, we were to going to the neighborhood. We were looking to see if the person was, you know, we were thinking how, how do serial killers work? Do they go back for trophies? Do they wow. like to go back to the scene of the crime? Um, are they proud of their work? Do they, we were trying to, you know, we were just yeah, anything we could think of. We, I think at one point before we got a, a photo, we were discussing, I think we were looking for a dark wig and I was going to wear it and see if somebody was walk around the neighborhood looking drunk and see if anybody yeah, yeah, we were, yeah, we were hunting. Um, in the same way that we looked for Tess, we were looking for him. Wow. Do you recall, like, do you remember the day that you found out he was identified? And did you know that that was, that had happened? Um, I remember when I found out there was an arrest and we weren't, he, they wouldn't give us his name until the next morning. Mm-hmm. Like, we, until the court, okay. until he was being brought into the courts. So, um the two questions I asked detective Lumanis when he called us that night and said there was an arrest. It was just after the Super Bowl. I said, was, I said, one, I said, what are the, char- what is the charge? And he said, it's second degree. And I said, and I said, do we need to prepare ourselves for it being someone we know? And he said, no. So we didn't know what to expect other than what we had seen in the surveillance until we got in the courtroom the next day. Further, like the reading of the charges, is that what? Yeah, or whatever. Yeah, I guess an arraignment. I, I, that's a bit blurry, but because mm-hmm. it was about eleven thirty or so, I think when they called us to say the arrest was made, and so obviously we were very wound up and unable to sleep and crying and scared to go into court the next day, but also like determined to. And... Uh, we were able to affect the arrest of the. Uh person responsible for Tessa's murder. Toronto police say 22-year-old Tess Ritchie was strangled to death in the village in November by a young man she met that very same evening. They were together for some time and that Mr. Uh, Schlatter left the area and that uh, by the time he left, Tess uh, was already unfortunately deceased. 21-year-old Kalen Schlatter, a man with no previous criminal record, stands charged with second-degree murder. Police had released these surveillance photos of him and say they became aware of Schlatter early on in their investigation. The lead detective calls the murder a crime of opportunity. The opportunity presented itself. The cause of death, strangulation. It was November 25th when Tess Ritchie went missing after a night of partying with an old friend at Cruz and Tango's in the church in Wellesley area. A snow-covered makeshift memorial still marks the spot where her body was found at the bottom of a stairwell, just doors away from where she was last seen. Her own mother was the one who found her there. Sister Verena Ritchie posted on Facebook, This is not a celebration for us, but it is a victory of sorts, and we would now like to finally focus our energy and attention on honoring and remembering the best and zaniest little sister any of us Ritchie girls ever could have asked for. 
at this point when he was arrested and you found out he was arrested, did you have any kind of insider info on, as to what evidence they had against him or were you waiting till trial? No, nope, we out? didn't even, we had to wait till trial. We didn't know that the reason for the upgrade to first degree was sexual assault. Um, we, we prepared ourselves for it. We tried to research like, you know, what are the reasons for, you know, what are the, what are criteria for first degree in the sense of, you know, Canadian law and, there was three different, you know, confinement, I think it was, sexual assault and premeditation. Um, so we, you know, prepared ourselves, but we were fairly, for the most part, we were in the dark mm-hmm. about a lot, about most. Yeah, and I, I imagine that must, like, waiting for the trial to begin, for one, knowing that it's going to be, you know, this much trauma going through the trial, like that, it must be hard to look forward to it in that respect, but also the fact that, like, I, I feel like if I was in your position, I'd be really anxious to get to the trial so I could learn what had happened. Like, was it? Yeah. Like, what were your feelings waiting for the trial to come? To be honest, at the beginning, we were gunning, you know, like, you know, when he was arrested, it was like, yeah, you know, and by the time it, it took two years to kind of come mm-hmm. to the trial, you've had to kind of imagine every possible scenario. And then you have to imagine every pot, like what could have happened to her down there and what did he do and why did he do it? You know, did he make faces? Did he tease her? Did he, you know, tell her what he was going to do? Did he scare her? Um, was it fast? All those things. You have two years, nothing but time and not a lot of information and just the agony. So you just relive what you think might be her last minutes from every different angle. So you're kind of prepared. But um, it still doesn't prepare you to hear the word sexual assault and things like that. When the, when the trial eventually did come, a lot of what was written about it will bring up the fact that Tess had an, basically an army of supporters there from friends, but especially so yourself, her mom, and, and the rest of your sisters. Like, Can, can you talk about kind of the mood amongst your family and amongst Tessa's supporters actually showing up like on day one of this trial like what how did you feel like when when the time actually came uh honestly I went to pre-trial uh, my mom and sister weren't able to because they were witnesses mm-hmm. so I actually had to keep a lot of information to myself right until the jury was in deliberation that didn't go before the jury oh wow okay uh yeah so that was fa- fairly difficult but that's why I waited I could do it you know a few weeks, I couldn't have done it any, or like, you know, if I had have found out, because I was allowed to find out the information, but I knew that if I had it for two years, that would just be too hard on me. So I I wanted to kind of find out as close to my family finding out at the same time as possible, if that makes sense. Um, so there was that, but I mean, you just, you can't, you can't hurt our girl and get away with it. And that's why the army is supporters. You're not going to get away with it. We're going to show you that she wasn't trash the way you left her, that she was loved, that she was somebody, that she meant everything to us. And um, I think that's what really defiance, a sort of defiance. You know, we can't, we can't get our physical hands on you the way we want to, but we can show up and make sure you know, and we can fill the courtroom when you were testifying and intimidate you and, you know, let you know that, you know, that there's a, a strong force behind a strong force of love behind Tess and her, and her life and her family. Farah, in an opening address, the Crown told the jury this is the case of a young woman who was sexually assaulted and brutally strangled by a man she just met. The man charged, Kaylin Schlater, has pleaded not guilty to first degree murder. Crown attorney Beverly Richards told jurors in her opening statement, the man who left his semen down the front of Tess Ritchie's pant leg and his saliva on the inside of Tess's bra was Kaylin Schlater. The man who murdered Tess by strangling her was Kaylin Schlater. Her family listened as the Crown described in detail how the accused killer bragged to two undercover police officers the night he was arrested. He told the officers that he loved brunettes, that he'd slept with over 40 girls, although he was only 21, the Crown said. Also, about the night he met Tess, how he wanted to have sex with her, she said no, and that made him upset. As the Crown laid out its case describing the sexual assault and strangulation of Tess Ritchie and how she fought back, her sisters wiped away tears. 
The case has sparked criticism against the Toronto Police Service for officers' failure to find Ritchie, and a review of how missing persons cases are handled is underway. As far as facing him within the courtroom, I guess you would have been in court with him during some of the pretrial motions, but mm -hmm. to be like, I, I just can't imagine the emotion of sitting there with the rest of your family in him basically sitting yeah, on the Yeah, it makes stick. me sick. Yeah, it makes me sick. I'll be honest, there's not a lot of days that I missed, but there was a couple of days of trial that I missed simply because I woke up and I was in such a rage knowing that I'd be in the same room that I really didn't trust myself. Wow. Like I actually recognized that myself that I didn't know that I couldn't not sit in the same room and not actually just try and hurt him. I'll be honest. Wow. So... I had to show restraint and stay home, especially when it came to things like, you know, um, the, the pathologist report. There's no way I could sit there and listen to a doctor describe the injuries on my sister while he sits there. You know, I just I know I, I couldn't have kept my hands to myself and I'm not that type of person at all. So, yeah, it was, it was very difficult. I'll tell you that. Very difficult. What about when, like, when the prosecution was presenting their their case and basically showing their version of what what happened that night and you know the evidence to support it? Like, did you feel the story that they that they presented was an accurate reflection of of what happened that night? And did you feel like when that was being presented against him that? it was like, like kind of like a strong attack against him. Like, did you feel like you, you had the evidence? The evidence. Cause we didn't know we would find out every day at this kind of around when everyone else would find out. So mm -hmm. it was hard to, to know. Mm -hmm. um, and with the UCs and, and the, the issues with that, there was a lot of, it was convoluted at times. What did the UC, what is that? The U, undercover officers, oh, okay. UC one and UC two, the yeah. UCs. Um, so, they didn't have judicial authorization to have audio tape. Okay. So they had to rely just on their statements. Mm -hmm. So um, we didn't we didn't know things that like that they had the undercover officers doing that. We didn't know these things. Um, you know that these things had happened until the trial came about. So, so you were hearing about this for the first time. Yeah. So we weren't okay. really sure about the strength of the case. We we wanted to feel like it was strong. If they if they worked if it took them eight weeks to upgrade it. It felt like they must have been working hard. They didn't just stop the investigation at the second degree arrest. They kept working to, you know, to fully uncover what they thought happened that night. And it does does ring true what what they have said, I guess. My sister was going through a heartbreak. She didn't wasn't interested in Schlatter at all. She multiple times tried to go home. You know, she'd had enough of the drink and she was tired. And as we all have done. And um, um, it was only in the closing statement that she said something about a shortcut theory. That um, the reason that she, my sister took his hand is he likely where the cab, she stood up at exactly the time on the surveillance camera as her phone pinged and she got the Uber alert. So she had every intention of going to catch the cab. And we believe he said, come here. I know a faster way to get behind that house. And so that's why, and she was wearing boots and there was that big gravel patch. So it does ring true that maybe that's how he got her hand and said, hold on, you're wearing heels as a gravel patch. I don't want you to fall and come this way. There's a shortcut. And, and that's how he got her um, in the kind of cornered. Um, so I, I do believe that, that that's actually probably what happened when they said that in the closing, the shortcut bit. I do believe that's. Probably I never could that one actually didn't cross my mind. And all the times I was thinking of all the different theories and that one didn't, but that one actually really rings true. I felt Bev and the crown were very strong, but there were times where I didn't feel the evidence was. Mm -hmm. What about like one, one of the things that really surprised me was that his web search history was excluded from, from the trial. No, I don't know the, the, the I legal... saw the evidence. Yeah, because you, you knew and about this. And it was this. horrific. Mm -hmm. No, I saw it in oh. pre-trial. I wasn't prepared for it. I wasn't warned. And it was, um, he most definitely acted out a little sick fantasy film. He had like a fake snuff film on his phone. And it, what's happened in the, the, in, the, in the fake snuff film is almost identical. Almost like the alleyway with the, with the, the garbage bins and the hitting in the head and the, 
Yeah, it was almost identical. He. So you were um, you were attending the hearing or whatever it was where they were deciding whether or not this could be used as evidence yes, against him. Yes. Yeah. And I didn't expect it. They said it was going. They were going to play a pornographic video. So it was the first day. It was actually the first first day, and it was like four p.m. So I wasn't. I expected me that kind of stuff would come up at pre-trial and even maybe on the first day, but I didn't expect quite what I had to sit through. Um, it was it was pretty much like watching it happen. What, yeah. what was your when you found out that they weren't going to use that against them in the trial? Were you surprised? Um, I I felt like yeah, I was a little worried that because I felt like that was a really damning piece of evidence. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was a bit worried about that because I felt like oh my god, like if he said something about it being inflammatory, and I was like, well, if you're a juror and you're going to be looking at you know a a young girl uh her autopsy photos or her her crime scene photos you know you've got to be able to take all of it right um um so in the end i understand why he did it because that crack that strikes out that chance of an appeal that means the jurors found him guilty without the inflammatory evidence um but you know it it's uh it it's certainly like i uh, it's 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 not a nice side of law i'll tell you that yeah, and it, I found it shocking. And you, you often will see a, a trial will go to deliberation or whatnot, and then there'll be an article that will come out like this is what the jury didn't know, and yeah. they'll you know, and that's a common kind of article to come out. Yeah, but yeah. this one in particular, when I read that, it, it's just like I wanted to scream like, you yeah. know, how could they not? Yeah. Like it seems like it's so relevant, but I guess the judge would have their reasons for, you know, they probably know better. Yeah. He said it was like far too inflammatory and prejudicial. I guess he said that it Mm -hmm. was, I mean, he mentioned it in the sentencing though. Mm -hmm. You know, he said something like, you know, you do have an appetite. I kept that from the jurors for a reason. Yes, that's right. Mm -hmm. You know, so that they would convict you fairly and without, you know, and he said, but it was your appetite for this violent pornography. Cause the judge was like, you know, he was just as shocked. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, when it was played out, like... Yeah. Now, when when the point came that his defense was, was presented, what... Like, I'm, I'm sure by this point, you had your mind made up that he was responsible for killing your sister. Mm-hmm. What, I always knew that. What was it like to sit and listen, to see him sitting there and to hear someone basically giving a different version of the story that paints him as innocent? Like, how... What did that... Um, to be honest, there was enough surveillance photo of of the alternate suspect. And I hate calling him out. He's actually become a friend, but oh. I have to use that because his identity is protected. Yeah. Um, he's actually sat with us every day during deliberations, waiting wow. for a verdict to come in. Cause his, you know, his life was kind of in the balance too. He wasn't ever being charged with this or investigated in any capacity related to this, but you know, he didn't know that he was going to be painted as this alternate suspect. Um, and, you know, I can, just about, you know, handle that, you know, with my background that, you know, everyone has the right to a defense and that defense lawyers are doing a job and an important one at that. But uh, I have, it's one thing to defend somebody who's likely guilty or whom you may suspect or know is guilty based on the evidence. It's another thing to totally drag an innocent person Mm -hmm. in order to do that. Like actual, like it wasn't just like some other person did it and, you know, an unknown. It was actually like they took somebody, a vulnerable person, targeted them and did anything they could to save Slatter's hide. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that was despicable. I mean, but again, if you can murder someone. Yeah, that's it's not a big step. Right, exactly. It's not a massive leap, is it? Mm -hmm. In this this alternate suspect or whatever we want to refer to him as mm-hmm. my understanding is he was just someone who happened to be caught on video like in that area completely he was out to see he was lonely guy a nice guy like not even lonely like it, it almost paints him as a and he's not anything but he's a really charming nice kind person um but they tried to present him as like lonely and maybe he was you know he was living alone he's single and you know bars were coming out and it could have made i guess a viable reasonable doubt to the jurors Mm -hmm. in the sense that they did produce a lot of surveillance photo where he's wandering around and he has some communications with my sister because she does kind of call him over Mm -hmm. but that's 
as you've noticed, we're kind of, you know, a talkative bunch. But at, at no time when he got off the witness stand, my mom went up to him and hugged him. I didn't see it. But um, she said, I just so you know, not one member of my family think you did it. And, you know, and he cried and she cried and we reassured him that, you know, we were disgusted by this. We were not prepared for that either. We didn't know that that was going to be the um, defense, shall we say. Well, we'll get into him taking the stand, and this must have been, by him I mean the accused. Uh, yeah. This must have been, I say the accused, the guilty. Yeah, um, yeah, now, that's right, yeah. Yeah, and that must be even a change to say that for you now, because like, we're talking just like two weeks out from this happening. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So yeah, that's right, I was thinking he's not, I'll, he's not the accused anymore, I don't have to call him the defendant or the accused or... You know, allegedly, mm-hmm. it's you know, it's been proven in fact that this is the person who did this. Mm-hmm. Um, to be honest, it was, for lack of a better word, intriguing because we knew so little about this person who's done so much damage to our family and our lives, Bartesi, for two years. Socials. None of his friends were giving interviews to the press, or nobody was coming forward and saying, "Oh, I know him." He, wow, like it was. It was really quiet. There wasn't anything out there. We were. We had nothing. Mm-hmm. So to actually, for the first time ever, hear his voice, to actually see um, his mannerisms. You know, aside from the trial too, it was always very, very short appearances because we couldn't go to the bail hearings or the prelim. But. Uh, yeah, it was, it was, you know, we wanted to hear his voice. We wanted to see what his mannerisms were. Who was this person that was the last person that our Tess ever spoke to or heard or saw? So there was, you know, interest in the sense that, you know, to finally hear him speaking or to see what he was going to say or how this was going to go. Um, but when he was cross-examined by Bev, the hatred the hatred he was when he was she was trapping him in his answers like Mm -hmm. the the hatred was so obvious like he was like he was seething he was raging and he just couldn't hide it so yeah whether that's the misogynist and him coming like he had two female defense lawyers that he seemed you know that he worked with and whatnot but when bev really trapped him i mean the hatred he was it was like his eyes were glinty. They were like slits, little slot, like slats or something. They were like, like black wow. almost. C- like you... He wasn't opening his full eyes, you know, like it was just this wow. dead eye. Can you think of any, like, was there any particular point of the cross-examination, like something they said to him or a corner they basically trapped him in that you really felt was like a kind of a turning point and well it's the way bev presented it it was pretty amazing i remember one point she was like oh and that was coincidence too was it mr schlatter and he was like uh yes and she's like oh (laughs) and she'd turn around and she'd just like like she'd just laugh like so like condescending like you think we're stupid do you and it was enraged like you could see it was enraging him and she was just like I, i mean the gloves like she had been kind of i knew she was a tough prosecutor crown but you know, with all her witnesses, she was quite gentle and, you know, but she was um, turning it on. When but she had the when chance. she, yeah, when she, when she had him on the stand, I mean, it was, I mean, I was, it was pretty marvelous in a way. Wow. Like I, I walked out feeling like, I'm glad she's on our side. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, wow, that, that was uncomfortable even for me, you know, yeah. like, well, good. Well, that's what you want now. It, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and it was pretty much right after, like, because I'm guessing that among the the whole trial, like one of the more emotional parts would have been his time on the stand. But once yeah. once he came off the stand, just before the closing arguments, it it appeared that the trial was going to be derailed or delayed mm-hmm. with the COVID nineteen coronavirus. Uh-huh. Like of the, all the things that could happen, I'm sure you could never have imagined <laughs> no. this. But tell me about like about that. Like when it. As the coronavirus started to spread and become a news story, like, do you remember the point where you're like, "Whoa, this may affect our trial"? Um, you know, it was really. I think it was when somebody actually got a hold of me and said the courts are sort of. I didn't. I just didn't think that this sort of. I never. I've. I've. You know, we've all been through H1N1, SARS. Mm -hmm. You know, I. I never for one second thought the whole entire world was going to shut down. Mm -hmm. 
but I didn't think, you know, and then when I actually started seeing courts being shut down and, um, and so then it all of a sudden became a big issue when it wasn't such a big issue for us at the time, Mm -hmm. you know, we were so focused and absorbed on this trial and then it became like the COVID became too big for us to even ignore while dealing with the trial. Wow. Um, we were, I, I know many people are suffering with the COVID, not just with having the virus, but from like the ripple effect mm-hmm. of the work, of the jobs, of the kids being home, childcare, the future, the fear, mm-hmm. how are we going to pay the bills? And I understand, like, I, I definitely don't want to take away from that, but I feel um, we were robbed a little bit um, in the sense that because we couldn't have the courtroom full, there wasn't allowed to be more than 50 people, including the jury. And that very quickly, if you include even the court staff, they have to have like police officers and, and things like that. It's, you know, we didn't get to fill it up with all her friends. They have kids, some of them. They didn't want, they, you know, they were worried about leaving the house and coming back and get, bringing something to their kids. Um, like out of everything, we couldn't imagine that a virus might have derailed the uh, trial like this. Mm. So we were pleased that it was able to continue. But it also meant that we were um, forced to be out there. Mm-hmm. you know, we had to kind of be exposed, be in a dirty, not that the courthouse is dirty, but yeah, there's, it is, there's a lot of people using it all day, elevators, mm-hmm. you know, the escalators and everything. Yeah, d- dirty has a whole different meaning right now. Like I'm pretty terrified to touch a tree or something. Right, right, right. Exactly. So, you know, unfortunately, but we were really happy that jurors were committed to seeing it through because they had, they were a big, it was basically down to them. Yeah, so they thankfully went ahead with it and everyone was in agreement. So it, uh, yeah, it was, it just, it just made it a lot, you know, a murder trial a lot harder. Watching the trial through the news articles and whatnot, like I expected deliberations to be short and sweet yeah. for the jury, but it, it stretched on for, it was, supposed, it really it was did. about a week, I guess, was it? that they? Yeah, well, it wasn't quite a week. It was fr- like Friday was a lot of, like they had a lot of, the judge had to speak to them for like about four hours. Yeah. About different aspects of the charges, the evidence. Um, so it was, you know, that, that first part of the Friday. And then they went into deliberation until about seven. So they got, I think they were finished being charged at about two o'clock or something. So they had lunch, they did a couple hours of deliberation and we thought, okay, that's normal. And we thought, okay, hopefully Saturday, like it's, you know, there's not a, there's not multiple victims. There's not multiple, it's not two accused or somebody who did, you know, it's not a, it should be fairly straightforward. We were hoping, but, um, you know, I, I, we don't know what went on in there. Maybe it was straightforward, but they just wanted to make sure they went over everything Mm -hmm. thoroughly. It's a big responsibility. Oh, definitely. And, you know, I don't envy them in any way. And as it stretched on, like, were you getting worried? Like, did you think maybe this isn't going to go our way? I always felt that way. Like, I'm not not felt that way, but there was always that. Um, yeah, the, you know, from the beginning of this whole thing, there's always been that uncertainty. So I, it was never for me like a, a done deal, even though I knew he was. I knew what was kept from them, jurors. And I knew that, you know, it was a complicated trial and there was a lot of evidence to go over and so um yeah i'm starting i was starting to worry Mm -hmm. you know we started to have a pep talk about like what we'd do if it was a not guilty yeah what would like what did you decide we were just talking about like we were just we weren't going to yell or shout anything we were going to hold our heads high we were going to walk out um so we were trying to brace ourselves and try and talk ourselves up about what we would have to do and how to maintain our emotions and our our feelings about this person what we know that he did but you know we we know that you know trial that's the whole thing of a trial could go anyway the jurors are you know it's unpredictable the jury has been in deliberation since friday and late today they came back with their verdict the test got her justice Words from Tess Ritchie's mother following the guilty verdict. But even though there's a small sense of relief. We'll never be happy, we'll never be complete again. But we could try to heal from here and do things in Tessie's name. Hearing the verdict today, Ritchie's mother says she was at a loss for words. I was shocked because I have to admit, I didn't expect murder in the first degree. 
I wanted it. I hoped for it. I prayed for it. But, you know, like you, you just don't know how these things can play out. The court heard Richie was out with friends on the night she disappeared. At one point during the trial, the jury watched video that showed Schlater leading Richie to an alley around 4 a.m. Schlater had pleaded not guilty, testifying that Richie was alive when he left her in an alley following what he says was a consensual sexual encounter. Uh, unfortunately, Tess was at the wrong place at the wrong time. The detective sergeant sending a special thank you to the jury. Okay, Kaylin Schlater is a predator. He's a murderer, and I want the jury to know again that they made the right decision and justice was served. And on the day Richie's family celebrates a small victory, they want people to remember who Richie was. She was the kindest, sweetest little girl, and she would take your hand and she'd walk down the street with you. She never hurt a soul, and she was a mama's girl. She was my best friend, my baby. And we all lost when we lost Tess. Now, a sentencing hearing will be held here at the University Courthouse on Wednesday at 10 a.m., but I should mention that this conviction holds a mandatory life sentence with no chance of parole for 25 years. When, when the verdict did come in and you found, and, you know, and, you, and it was the way you wanted it to be with him being found guilty, I know there was like celebration, but did you feel like, was there any change in, in your grief knowing that Tess would get justice and that he was no longer the accused or the suspect, but he did it? Like, did you feel a change come over you when, when you heard the verdict? No, honestly, no. I just felt, if anything, a deeper sadness. Like there's the big fight that was keeping us going that we had to kind of keep us going, that we were focused and motivated on, suddenly just ended. I mean, completely, like with the sentencing being so quick too. It was just, all of a sudden it was just grief. All we were left with was two families whose lives are in tatters and two 20-somethings, totally no futures anymore. Regardless, like it's not that I feel bad for him, but it's just I don't understand how, you know, somebody does something like this, how how this has affected, you know, like it just seemed, it just seemed like, again, it just, I find on Facebook that there was just no winners, you know, that this is, there's no winners in this. It's the right result. So it's a relief that he can't hurt anybody ever again, but it's, um, I don't feel peace. I don't feel closure. I don't feel anything, but maybe a bit of relief and deep, deep, deep grief and sadness. Like now we're just left with that sort of, we have other fights. Like there's, you know, the, the misconduct things and stuff coming up, but really this was obviously the, the big one that related as it related to what actually happened to my sister. Mm -hmm. But I, so I guess I never thought about the way that having this trial ahead of you was always like a mm -hmm. goal you were working towards. Yeah. But now that it's behind you, you're just kind of left with, yeah, we lost Tess. Yes, exactly. And then, you know, again, with the added, I don't mean to be, you know, self-pity, but the added, I can't travel home. Um, I can't, I'm, you know, I'm, I can't go out. I can't go get groceries. I'm already living, I'm already trying to make it work in Canada as it is. And then I had to come into Toronto, relocate for the trial. So it's already been like, I'm already kind of living a temporary place, going to another temporary place and trying back, back, back to my more permanent temporary place. Um, it's just, yeah, it's kind of left me with, a like everything just went away all of a sudden at once. I don't get to see my mom every day now. Like I did, you know, there was that kind of thing, you know, my sisters were there every day and, you know, we had the support of Bev and all of them. And now it's sort of like, we're just at home. You just, yeah, the grief is all you focus on. And then you can't even do anything about it to make yourself feel better because, you know, nobody can come out and see you. You can't go in anybody's house. You, I have to be in quarantine because I was one of the people that was out there. You know, so I have to make sure that I'm not making anybody sick. But, you know, isolating yourself after a murder trial is very uh, unhealthy. Now, so with the, with the trial and the sentencing behind you, like, what will come next for your family as far as, like, keeping 
keeping Tess as a part of your life and, you know, keeping her memory, you know, a, a big part of you. Like, how do you I know it's only been a few weeks since the trial ended, but how do you see that happening in the future? I um I don't actually know. <laughs> um, you're right. It's a lot to take in. I just know that it, this is every family's worst nightmare. Really, truly, it is. It's there's no worse nightmare. That's what you worry. You worry some bad person's going to hurt the person you love, and somebody's going to reach into your family and and take the heart out of it. Effectively, you see on the news these families. You know we're to become that family to actually. I don't even know what to say. It's just, yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm actually kind of at a loss for this one. It's kind of hard to. <sighs> and I, I do know it was something that this kind of side of life was something Tess even spoke about publicly. Like I, I'm sure, you know, the YouTube video that she, yes. that she published yeah. and yes, it's just, I find that kind of a, just a strange coincidence that, that, that kind of still exists. That, that that video yeah i haven't i know of it i haven't watched it because um i'm i actually have a lot of things i haven't looked or watched or done because i'm scared to um almost go through the limited things we have left of her yeah like those videos I, i'm glad that she did them i'm glad that but I'm, it just they do make me sad knowing that they're about you know having a bad boyfriend you know, in such a short life, she did seem to meet a lot of bad people mm-hmm. or people. I won't I won't group these these men into um, a, a group with murder. Obviously not. But she did seem to kind of have bad luck from boyfriend to boyfriend. And then they go out and get over a boyfriend and somehow fall into the sight line of a killer is, you know, it's just tragedy upon tragedy upon tragedy mm-hmm. with her. Like, it's just so sad. Yeah. And. I don't know if you spent much time thinking about this, but as as far as like her killer now is going to spend a good amount of his life behind bars, like do you think as as far as like rehabilitation, like do you do you believe in that? And do you do you no. think there's any like I know you're I saw I clip- do not not at this point not no. for not that for this type of thing. Mm-hmm. No, I don't think you can hold somebody's airway as they fight for their life and then not care for five days while their family's frantic and to pin you know it's just i don't need to 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 put it on another innocent person that that can't be rehabilitated that's not a person who's sorry that's not a person who feels sorry they feel sorry for themselves um um no i i do believe i believe in a lot of cases that 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 sentencing that that uh prison um um uh, sentences should be rehabilitative um but i've always long even before tests i've always felt like murder is just it's something you can't ever replace or undo so it's not it's it's not it's not a re it's not something you rehabilitate from Mm -hmm. it's just there's something broken in you to do that to someone that you can't fix i saw it I saw a short interview with with your mom that was, I think, on on the news maybe just last week, where she um, she compared him to uh, a mm-hmm. young Paul Bernardo, and I, mm-hmm. I I can see that. I can see that too. Um, he certainly, um, when we were looking for him, there was things like um, people were able to identify the label of his jacket mm-hmm. and find out that it was a very expensive jacket. Um, when he showed up, when he was arrested, when he was arraigned or whatever it is called in, in court the morning after he was arrested, he was wearing very nice clothing. So he was very much a, uh, somebody who clearly took pride in their clothing and their appearance. And Paul Bernard was very good looking. Um, uh, you know, he was sort of charming. I don't know if Slatter was charming. Um, I know that from accounts from, uh, you know, from Bernardo that, you know, he was, but, um, I, I, I've only seen him on the stand and, and he was raging, <laughs> you know, as Bev kind of tore him apart. So I, um, I don't know if he's charming. He didn't come across to me that I think he was also stupider, <laughs> more stupid rather than Paul Bernardo. Paul Bernardo was more progressive. It seemed he started with like rapes or think, I believe he was like, a, he was a Scarborough rapist or something. He was the 
um, it was bizarre too. He was, um, Slatter was sentenced in the same courtroom as Bernardo was 25 years ago. So that was bizarre being afraid of that case when I was a teenager to being almost a part of that story, a piece of that story, knowing what their families, you know, I looked at a picture, he applied for parole last year or in 2018. And I looked at a picture of the families. There is no way I looked at them. They, and and with all due respect that they're listening or they hear this, they, there's, they, they did not recover. They did not heal. Time did not do its thing. You can see the pain etched into their faces. And I know that's our future. I see them. There's just that, that, that look that I know that I, that I know well now, and I know that it won't go away on us either. Oh, sorry. Yeah. And no, I was, I want to end on not talking on on him, but try to end on a positive note. Now, for for people who are listening, that are are drawn to tests and are feeling for for you and and your family, like what can people out there to do to support you or to uh, honor tests? Like, what can we learn from this, or what good can come of this? Uh, you know what? That's a really good to everyone the community i mean my friends from childhood my old employers previous employers everyone i mean i have needed i've been on my knees i've needed i came back to canada i didn't have health care i didn't have residency i didn't have a car i didn't have a home i didn't have a winter jacket um i'll be honest i actually got on the plane i didn't even have a bra and i didn't realize i didn't pack one a friend had to loan me one um because i was in such a state when i got the news Tess was found and she was gone, that packing, you know? So all I can just say is thank you to everyone who has done that. And if you are a person in a position to help someone, um, do it. It's, it can make a whole difference in whether or not they, they choose to try and at least keep going a little bit or they choose to, you know, go a dark route, a very dark route. So that's what I could say. If you see somebody in need, if they ask for a ride on Facebook to go get some groceries or they need, you know, a ride to a doctor's appointment or they need whatever it is, a place to stay at in Toronto for the night while you're going to court or a meal, gas, a ride, whatever. It's, you know, yeah, that's what I would say. If you see someone in need and they're asking You'll never know. Maybe, you know, I know I've said thank you a million times and maybe I've said thank you to the point where it almost lost meaning, but perfect strangers have opened their doors to me, like friends, moms that have never, you know, friends, parents that have never met me and things like that. It's just the generosity of the community that I've either that I'm surrounded by or that I've built both of them. It's just been incredible. So whether they did it for me or they did it for Tess, I don't know, but we're both, I'm sure I can speak for her and say we're both really grateful. Yeah make most of the time if your family it's really cliched but um it's the truth you don't know you're not promised tomorrow and you never know you never know when just suddenly just like that the whole world changes I want to thank you for joining Verena and I in this discussion that was simply heartbreaking. If evil does exist in this world, it showed its face in this horrific story. The inspiring and young Tess had her life cut way too short, and the loved ones she left behind, like Verena and the rest of the Ritchie women, will certainly never be the same. But as Verena said, maybe some good can be squeezed out of this. Perhaps in the form of systemic improvements in the police handling of missing persons cases. Or it could be something as simple as her words reminding us to spend time with family and inspiring us to help out someone in need. Verena and the Ritchie family, my sincere condolences on the loss of your Tessie. And with that, we'll end this episode of Nighttime. But before we part, I'd like to end with some thanks. First, a huge thank you to Verena Ritchie for bravely sharing your family's story with us. Verena, I'm proud to know you, and I'm proud to call you my friend. And in addition to Verena, I'd like to thank the Canadian bands Vox Somnia and Paragon Cause for providing this episode's musical themes. And lastly, a huge thank you to everyone listening to Nighttime. 
Without you, this show would have seen the light of day many moons ago. If you want to help keep the lights out at nighttime, let me suggest the premium feed. For about the price of a cup of coffee, you can access a separate feed where the episodes are posted earlier than the free feed and done so without paid advertising. But just beyond the regular episodes, the premium feed also includes the nightcap after show episodes in which I and a guest climb a bit deeper down the rabbit hole. And with that said, I want to thank the newest subscribers to that premium feed, David L. and Shauna. Thank you both for your generous support. And for anyone else who'd like to support the show but can't help financially, you can give me a big hand by simply telling your friends about me and leaving a positive review on Apple Podcasts or any equivalent you use. If any of you listening want to stay up to date with my activities on or off the show, follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I use the handle at NighttimePod. And of course, if you have any story ideas or would like to give feedback on the show, I'd love to hear from you at NighttimePodcast at gmail.com. Now, until next time, take care of each other, hug your loved ones tight, and stay safe out there. The Nighttime Podcast is written, hosted, and produced by Jordan Bonaparte. Copyright Jordan Bonaparte. Yeah, I, th- I think a lot of people, like the public, wouldn't realize the, the ripple effects that come from a crime like this. I'm sure your whole family have their lives derailed. This one person, so full of evil and anger and hate, has t- not only been nothing but a terrible weight on the system and on the and society, but he took away six really, you know, contributing members of society with a lot of potential. All ripped away, all gone.